This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello, and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. This episode is for late January 2019, a new year. My name is David Dalt, and I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith. I'm here with my friend Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan friar of Holy Name Province in New York, and he's an assistant professor of systematic theology and spirituality at Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. Every couple of weeks, we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Dan, as always, it's great to see you. Welcome. Great to be with you, David. Happy New Year. Thank you. We also have special bonus segments for all of you friends of Frank who support the show by donating each month on Patreon. Every couple of weeks, we put a little bit of bonus audio, an extended discussion or an interview or something else out there. If you'd like to hear them, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod and become a monthly supporter of the show. We also want to remind you that you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at FrancisFXPod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing FrancisEffectPod at gmail.com. That's effect spelled the English way, E-F-F-E-C-T. We also want to thank our season sponsors, Liturgical Press and Franciscan Media. They help to make this show possible. So please show them your support and let them know that you appreciate it. Thank you. So, Dan, how have you been? Happy New Year? Yes, and as we're recording, it's the first Monday of the first week of Ordinary Time, so we are now beyond the holidays, officially and liturgically. Yeah. Things are good. If, if listeners hear a little weirdness in my voice, it's because I have that seasonal cold, uh, a little bit of a head cold, but I'm, I'm plugging along as we start a new semester here in Chicago. Mm. The holidays were good. It was good to be with my family. I was on the road quite a bit and uh, wrapped up uh, the pre spring 2019 semester with a visit to Reno, Nevada, or Nevada, as I was corrected at one point saying. I said, I said, oh, geez, I didn't mean to be so offensive. I kept saying Nevada, and they pronounce it Nevada, I believe. They assured me that it's not as bad as saying Oregon when you mean Oregon. So, um, you know, I, I, you learn as you go. This is my fourth time to Nevada, and my third time at this conference, this Diocese of Reno annual conference, which I really enjoy going to. It's it's a little surreal because everything in Nevada, uh, every hotel is at the same time a casino, and smoking indoors is still a thing there. So that's a little bit physically uncomfortable, but it's worth it because the people are tremendous. So on the second floor in the ballrooms and these kind of conference rooms, you have this uh, miniature scale version of the LA Religious Ed Congress. So it's about 1,000, 1,200 people. 
And they have speakers that come in from around the country and, and a keynote speaker and usually a liturgical musician who puts on a concert. It's really a great event. Um, and I've been privileged to be invited three years in a row to go and speak there. And I've always enjoyed it and I continue to enjoy it. But it's so funny. You know, you get up in the morning and you go walk through the lobby to get to where the conference area is. And you're passing all these jackpot machines. I don't even know what they're called. I'm so terrible at, at, at gambling. I don't know the terms. But, you know, they're card tables and all this kind of stuff. And you hear the clink, 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 clink. And then you're walking through in this Franciscan habit. And people are the people who notice you give a weird look. But most people are just so glued to their machines uh, and then you go up to the second floor and you're you know you begin morning prayer with, <laughs> with all this liturgical music that walk through that casino is the only sermon some of those will ever hear <laughs> it's very reminiscent of sister act number one <laughs> so when the nuns are running through the casino and so uh, I, I think folks are used to w- seeing weird things when you're in places like reno and las vegas and so i don't think people give much of a, a glance at that but it's a uh, it's a wonderful event and i I have to give a shout out to the to the organizers of, of that event, uh, Monique and, and Brianna and, and their whole team. If you are in the eastern part of California, you know, uh, Sacramento, the the, uh, the Sierra Nevadas, is that my saying that right? The Sierras, I guess, the mountain range. It's sadly where the Donner Party had mm. their uh, final days, uh, part of the, some of them. In any event, um, it's, it's a great event. I encourage people to go if you are in that area in the first weekend of January every year. The check-in took a dark turn it there. Did, <laughs> did. I mean, I always think about it. Just one quick little side note about that. We had a snowstorm that came in on Sunday as people were trying to leave. It, it got so bad. It, it led to a lot of chaos uh, with, with the airlines and, and planes not being able to get out and so forth. But it also led to some chaos when it came to people who lived in L.A. And, and San Francisco who were speakers or people attending the conference, and they wanted, to, they said, you know, it'd just be easier to drive home. That became impossible because Route 80, which goes through the, the mountains, they kept saying the pass is closed. They literally shut down the road, and, and I just was thinking about that. I'm like, oh, goodness, it still happens. For our listeners who don't know what the Donner Party is, don't Google it. On that slightly macabre note, David, how are you? Well, I will say that my favorite creative nonfiction author, Richard Rhodes, did write an excellent book on the Donner Party, if you want to find out what the Donner Party is. Uh, How am I? I'm tired, but I'm very well. I had a wonderful Christmas uh, time away from Chicago, spent some time with my parents-in-law. The family was all there, including my brother-in-law, and just we had a we had a good time around Christmas. I got a lot of work done. I got a book manuscript turned in, although there's still a lot of work to do, and working a lot on just getting uh, all of the different media that I work on ship-shaped. So some of the stuff that I do for hire got a lot of attention, and some of the shows that I produce got a lot of attention. We're moving all of my shows to a new platform, so users and listeners won't notice any difference, but we will now be with the Megaphone platform, which is run by Panoply. We're not part of the Panoply network, but we'll be served onto the RSS feeds by that system, which will mean an improvement across the board on just efficiency and getting shows out and metrics and all of that. And I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying the new year. I'm glad that 2018 is done. I just am glad that it's done. It's a, it was a rough year. Yeah. 
We should say before we get into the um, material of our show, just just two things. One is for our listeners who have been with us and were with us or may have just joined us for the first time last season, season three, we took um, a, a little bit of a detour from our typical format and we dedicated our episodes that season to looking at tensions and frustrations in the church from various uh, social locations and perspectives. We are back this season four. Hard to believe it's four seasons already. Not to be confused with the elite hotel chain, the Four Seasons. (laughs) This season four is back to the regular format where we will look at current events, politics, uh, situations in the church and world and uh, kind of discuss them from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. But there are also two other items of uh, news that it might be of interest to our listeners. And that is, it just so happens, David, you and I have two new columns that are being published Two different uh, publications, but have sort of kind of debuted around the same time, coincidentally, just happenstance. You want to say something about yours? Sure. I was invited to become a columnist at the St. Anthony Messenger, which is a publication of Franciscan Media, one of our sponsors. My first column came out in the January issue, which dropped late December, and I will be there once a month writing, I, I believe that they're calling the column Faith Unpacked. And so it'll be a lot of fun for me to actually have this new venue because I haven't I haven't been a regular publisher anywhere for a long time. So it's nice to to be back into that. And and you now have a column with National Catholic Reporter. Is that correct? That's correct. Congratulations. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Yeah, I've been in conversation with NCR for a while. Listeners may know that. From 2013 to 2017, I was a columnist at America Magazine, the Jesuit uh, magazine. And uh, in 2017, they restructured their format so that they sort of eliminated all of their regular columns and went from a weekly publication to a twice-monthly publication. And so for the last two years or so, I've been kind of on a columnist uh, op-ed retreat or sabbatical or break, which has been... Recharge. Recharge, which which actually has been rather enjoyable. A few other publications had been in conversation with me about would I be interested in in coming out of that retirement or that sabbatical. And it it hadn't really been the right time or the right situation, but um, I'm really pleased to say that, um, that it's worked out well with NCR, and I'm really thrilled to be a part of that team. And so my column will be coming out uh, every other Wednesday. It comes out twice a month. Uh, Sister Joan Chittister and I are kind of the alternates. So she's on one Wednesday. I'm on the next Wednesday back and forth. So uh, listeners, take a look at that. That's a nice tandem to be on. It is. Yeah. It is. I, I am not worthy to untie her sandal, but um, I'm happy to be the alternating week. I'm, I'm week B, we might say. She's the A week. Well, congratulations on that. So for our show today, we're going to be covering three topics. The first topic, we're going to be looking at the government shutdown and this argument over the border wall and all of the ramifications of that. In our second segment, we're going to be looking at a recent uh, article by Peter Steinfels, a substantial article by Peter Steinfels, the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report, Not What It Seems, which was published recently in Commonweal Magazine. And in our third segment, we're going to be looking at the Synod 2018 final document and talking a little bit about that as well. So we will be back in just a moment, and thank you for being with us. This is The Francis Effect. Hello, this is David, uh, outside the podcast realm for the moment, just talking to you in advertising land. If you're enjoying the conversation that we're having, I want to make sure that you're aware that I do another show as well called Things Not Seen, Conversations About Culture and Faith. 
That's a weekly show that's been on since 2011, and we've talked to some amazing guests. It's basically a long-form interview where we get a chance to talk about how faith animates a person's life. We talk to authors and politicians and tastemakers and musicians, any kinds of folks that have some sort of faith component to their lives. So I'd love it if you get if you gave that a chance, too, and gave that a listen. That's at thingsnotseenradio.com. That's thingsnotseenradio.com. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hello and welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt. I'm here with my friend Dan Haran. Every couple of weeks we get together and discuss issues and topics through a lens informed by our shared Catholic faith. In our first segment today, we're going to be talking about just the mess that is happening right now with our government and the fact that we are now, as we tape this, we are in the longest shutdown in America's history. I hesitate to even call it a tactic. It is something that happens all too frequently in our current political climate where there is no governance. There's only the possibility of of stalemate and each side locking in their horns and an inability to find any sort of way forward. Now, I hesitate. You notice I'm hesitating to use the word compromise because in previous shutdowns, there was the possibility of negotiation. In this particular case, we have a clear history where there were reasonable compromises brought to the table from the Democratic Party, and it went through. There was a unanimous vote in the Senate, which included the Republicans uh, supporting a, a proposal which was brought to the president, and then the president broke his word and refused to sign the bill, leading to the government shutdown right before Christmas. Families are suffering People are are unsure what this means. It seems like as a political tactic, this is it's hurting people in a way that we haven't seen before. And I, I have a lot to say about it, but I'd be interested, Dan, first of all, to just see what your take on all of this is. Yeah, I think that's a, a pretty good kind of overview just to get us going. I think it's worth stepping back a little bit, too, and looking at how we got to this situation. You know, why is this going on? And you've alluded to that a little bit. The primary thing is, and there's no there's no kind of beating around the bush here, is that this is all occasioned by a campaign promise and one of the kind of more regular uh, slogans of of the Trump campaign and then the Trump administration, which is, quote unquote, build that wall. It's morphed over the period of 2015 to 2019 now, the last better part of three and a half, four years where uh, then-candidate, now-President Trump had said at one point that Mexico was going to build this border wall. He has switched to say that uh, we need to pay for the border wall, we, the U.S. citizens, um, that it's worth this government shutdown um, to, to make this point, etc. But, but stepping back a little bit, why is it that he had suggested that a wall is necessary in the first place? Even if we were to say that that would be a, a kind of a functioning reasonable, successful, or potentially successful means of of border security, which experts have flatly rejected, at least a large, uh, at least along large swaths of the uh, southern U.S. border. There were just places where a physical wall is not helpful at all. The, the, the kind of impetus for this was candidate Trump and then President Trump and the Trump administration's claim, largely bogus claim, 
that there is a, quote, security crisis at our border, that there are drugs, that there are criminals, that there are, as he mentioned in his announcement of his candidacy running for president in 2015, that there are, quote, rapists coming into or flooding into the United States. Basically, what this amounts to is fear-mongering, scapegoating, racist kind of vitriol that has been used to stir up uh, a, a base, a small base, but a vocal base and a base that is convinced or has been convinced or convinces itself that there is a real security threat at our southern border. Now, facts have something to say about this. They're so, stubborn things. They're stubborn things, and uh, they, they seem to be uh, unable to penetrate the logic of the Trump administration and its its base. Nevertheless, we are at a all-time low is that is that the right kind of description i guess it is we're we're, we're at an all-time low when it comes to uh apprehensions at the border that means that the number of people attempting to come in uh illegally is actually significantly lower than it's been in many many years we don't see for instance the the threat that that mexicans or that central americans are coming over the border and bringing drugs around the border illegally that's simply not true uh, you, the president in his 10 minute public address uh, last week made reference to things like fentanyl the majority in fact the, the huge majority of fentanyl comes to the united states from china and is delivered through regular kind of legal shipment means it's true that drugs like crystal meth come from you know the southern border comes through the southern border but it comes through smuggled through legitimate means so that's through cars that's through persons who are passing through normal uh, legal border procedures and so the the idea that there is a, sec a security crisis is a total myth now what there really is at our southern border and this is of great import for Catholics and for Christians and for all people of goodwill is a genuine humanitarian crisis and, and I think it's worthwhile to highlight two aspects of this humanitarian crisis that don't get emphasized enough. One is, why are these women and children and men coming to our southern border? The answer is the humanitarian crises in their own homes, uh, their own communities, their own uh, home nations. And that's violence, that's gang-related, that's political instability, that's civil war-related uh, matters. And that, that's a humanitarian crisis in and of itself. And then, you know, David and I have talked about this a lot on this podcast in previous seasons about the responsibility we have for the destabilization of the Central American, South American, and Mexican context. But we don't have to rehearse that right now, but we could get into it. The second aspect of this humanitarian crisis is a direct result of these inhumane policies that the Trump administration has put into place at the border. And so here we can think of the child separation policy. Here we can think of the fact that those genuinely seeking asylum or uh, some kind of refugee status have been forbidden from approaching the normal legal means so that they're kind of in queue or camped up in, uh, in Mexico right now and are not able to access the internationally recognized procedures for applying for asylum. These sorts of things are manufactured. They are – they were not – in existence, you know, two years ago, three years ago, and they've been exacerbated by the racist and uh, xenophobic policies and fear-mongering that this current administration has been promoting. Well, and I mean, you just gave us a grand overview of, of this. It's very useful to think about that history. There's a longer history also of government shutdowns. So let's, let's now look back to that. This morning, as I was preparing to come into the studio, NPR trotted out Newt Gingrich 
who, <laughs> and I, I just want to say to NPR and to any responsible journalistic outlet, stop doing that. If you have a situation where someone has burned down a house, you don't want to go and get the perspective of the arsonist. Stop, stop. Well, Stop. And you're making reference to the shutdown in the 90s. The 90s, yeah. yes. I just want to say, Newt Gingrich, who helped to engineer the kind of Ur shutdown, where shutdown was really first used as a political tactic in, in my lifetime and in my memory, if you have someone who does something like that, who creates chaos for the sake of making political hay, and in my analogy, who burns down the house, you don't go and interview another arsonist to get their perspective. And so I just think that responsible news outlets should stop giving airtime to sociopaths. I think that... Uh, We're starting 2019 with no gloves on. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, but, but let's look at what a shutdown actually does. Yeah. Among other things, a shutdown in this particular case stopped TSA and the Border Patrol from getting funding. So if we actually have a concern, and the Coast Guard as well, so if we actually have a concern about the things that President Trump talked about in his nine-minute address recently, it seems to be counterintuitive to defund all of those things at the time that you say that there's a crisis. It's almost as if you're manufacturing the crisis in order to make political hay out of it. Oh, it is. It's it's the tail that wags the dog in this case. It is interesting, too, and, and for our listeners who may not be as familiar with what we mean by shutdown, what we're talking about here is that the you know the, the Congress has to pass at least what are called continuing resolutions to keep the government funded. So this is a, a typical budgetary process, and you know oftentimes when there's not a political kind of hot potato at stake, this is a regular kind of run of the mill thing. It's passed like any law. So you know you can watch Schoolhouse Rock and learn how a bill is passed. But the, the Congress you know passes these continuing resolution bills. And the president signs them as a matter of form. And what happened just a few weeks ago, as David made reference to earlier, is that a, a bill, a continuing resolution bill, was passed in the House, and the Senate passed it 100 to 0 unanimously. That's Republican and Democratic uh, senators passed it. And it went to President Trump, and he was about to, to sign it. And then a couple very right-wing pundits, including uh, Laura Ingram and uh, Ann Coulter and others, started accusing uh, Donald Trump of being weak and, and failing to fulfill his campaign promises of building a wall and to basically encourage him to use his veto power as a bludgeon to force the Congress to pass um, or to give him the money that was needed to build this wall, something now being bantied about about $5.7 billion or something like that. So this was, I mean, this was totally unnecessary. It wasn't out of like rancor that was occurring in the in the House or in the Senate. This this was purely a personal, as, as a number of columnists in the Washington Post and New York Times have said recently, it's a temper tantrum. Trump is is illustrating a terrible two sort of attitude. I don't like the way my kind of base gurus are referring to me and they're calling me weak and therefore I'm going to hold this entire country hostage. And to your point, David, we have 800,000 plus federal employees who are not being paid. There are real consequences and there are ancillary consequences as well. You know, At the same time, there are necessary jobs that have to be fulfilled like security, homeland security, TSA, uh, food inspection, these sorts of things. And so people have to go to work or are told they need to go to work because it's these, you know, we cannot 
function as a society without it. And yet they're working without pay. Uh, it, it's just it's it's terrible. Well, and there are Republicans who are voting against giving these people back pay when they actually do open the government again. And and so it's a cascade of nightmares for these people. And I think that one of the things that it's awakening us to in terms of the national conversation is how many of our fellow brothers and sisters here in this country are literally living one paycheck away from disaster. You know, they they have cobbled together a budget that allows them just enough stability to make sure that they can live as long as the next paycheck comes. But now that stability is being wrecked. And we're going to see we're going to see, I think, disastrous consequences, not just from this immediate shutdown, but from the ripple effects that come economically in terms of, I mean... Well, can I give a, yeah, a, an illustration of yes. that? This was shortly before the new year. I heard a report on the radio about how in the wake of the shutdown, and it hadn't lasted as long as it has now, and because of the holidays, the actual paychecks that would have been uh, distributed hadn't yet come, so people hadn't felt the crunch necessarily. But certain uh, departments within the government were actually giving almost like doctor's notes. They were giving letters to their employees to say, show this to your landlord, ask, you know, once the shutdown ends, you will get paid, tell them it's on its way. Okay, well, that's, I, I suppose, generous given the circumstances and, and trying to say, you know, it's not that you're trying to get out of paying your rent or something like this or your electric bill. But what happens then if you're the landlord and you're depending on that income to pay your bills? And so exactly what you're saying, this cascading effect is, is real. This is not an imaginative thing. And I frankly find it deeply, deeply insulting um, and obscene even when people like President Trump and his supporters say, you know, and clearly he's not talking to people who are really affected by this. Well, the, the people understand that this is so important. You know, the, the American people, they, they want this and they understand they're going to endure this. Coming from the mouth of a billionaire who is doing this so arbitrarily is deeply insulting when people's lives are at stake. Thinking about that in terms of hypocrisy, we can also look at the history when, because under President Obama, the government shut down a couple of times. When the Obama administration tried to use that as political leverage, Mitch McConnell's response was, Mr. President, we are happy to negotiate around these issues once the government is open again. I, I see no reason now why we should expect the Democrats to take any other type of approach to this. Let's get back to the normal order of things and we will sort out these issues of security on the border. Let's not hold the American people hostage in the process of this. And I, I imagine that Catholic social teaching has a lot to say about using economic cudgels against populations. Well, Jesus has something to say about that. Uh, yeah, please. And, you know, you mentioned the word hypocrisy, and it's, it's telling that in the Gospels, every single time Jesus gets really worked up and upset, it's, it's with hypocrites. And particularly with civil and religious leaders where he says, for instance, you who put these ridiculous burdens on the shoulders of others and don't lift a finger to help them. Well, I mean, is that not what we see playing out? Back to the, um, this, this idea of opening the government and then we can continue to have these debates about that, which is exactly what leaders Schumer and Pelosi have said in response to the president's you know, primetime address and in general. And I think, I think you're right, although it strikes me that the Republican Party you know, in McConnell in particular, um, the, the hypocrisy is their middle name. I mean, whether it's Supreme Court nominations, whether it's, you know, uh, doing away with particular rules in the Senate or in the House for how things are passed, um, they do not hold themselves to the same standards they hold others. And so that it's deeply frustrating, but that's just the reality. I think that what leaders Pelosi and Schumer are 
you know, saying is very reasonable and, and sensible. Open the government. Let's continue to have this conversation. At the very least, open up all those departments and, and aspects of the government that are not directly related to border security. So if you want to defund or hold or freeze homeland security and border security and customs and border enforcement, whatever it may be, that's fine. But why does the Department of the Interior, why does the Department of Agriculture that regulates, you know, the food inspection and so forth, why do these things need to be on hold? It makes no sense. When it comes to Catholic social teaching, Again, you know, one thing we've reiterated a lot in this uh, podcast over the seasons is that the common good is at the heart of what government is all about. When it comes to Catholic teaching, the maintenance, the the protection, the promotion of the common good is what's at heart. This is a, a political interest of of one person rooted in a fabricated, manufactured pseudo crisis, and this is not promoting the common good. It's just. It seems so blatantly obvious to me. When we think about these questions of the common good, when we think about the ways in which Catholics should be thinking about this, there are movements within the wider Catholic Church that are allied with the ideals of smaller government, and they misuse, in my opinion, the ideas of subsidiarity to argue for a kind of laissez-faire economics. I'm waving at you, my friends at the Acton Institute I was thinking and of the Women Christie Institute. Institute. So, you know, that... That's fine. We can have we can have internecine disagreements about the right size of government, but having a, a philosophical disagreement about the role of government is different from putting that into action in a way that is unilateral, in a way that actually creates chaos for human beings, and then to act as if it's for some high-minded purpose, or to say that you're saving the people by literally destroying their lives. Well, the irony here to me, too, is that part of the platform of of this party that is, is creating this shutdown right now and perpetuating it, creating this injustice, is, you know, they're the, supposed to be the party of security, right? It's it's the, the, the party of law and order, as it were, and they're creating more kind of destability, destabilizing policies and and conditions, it just strikes me as as ironic. Well, they're also the party of private property, and yet the the mechanism that they are planning to use all across the southern border is the seizure of lands through eminent domain. It is, again, counterintuitive to conservative principles. If we want to think about what classic conservative principles have been, I was raised a Reaganite Republican— I understand the logic of saying small government means that people get to flourish and they get the chance to enjoy the fruits of their labor and they get the chance to enjoy their property without being molested by the government. It seems like that is not what is being proposed here. It seems instead a complete counterman to conservative principles to just say we're going to seize this land, we're going to run roughshod over – I was hearing an NPR report over the weekend of there, there are religious sites along the border which now are going to have walls run through them or or they're going to have the – and I'm talking about Christian religious sites. So if, if we're concerned about religious land use and we're concerned about religious free expression, which the Republican administrations have often said at the state and national level that they are, this again is running counter to that claim that we're going to support religious land use, we're going to support religious free expression. Instead, this one unilateral desire for a wall is becoming literally the idol that is pushing everything else aside. It's Moloch for our particular generation. So what about, I mean, I'm curious, this is a bit of a different um, question, but related to the topic at hand, and that's what do you make of this false equivalency that happens? Particularly, you know, you see it with with Leader McConnell and others in response to say, well, you know, the Democrats are saying 
just open the government and we'll negotiate. And certain Republicans, including President Trump and, and his associates, will say, well, if the Democrats just give me the wall, then we'll open the government. And so they're trying to kind of place the blame on the Democratic Party. I mean, is there any validity to that from your vantage point? I mean, rhetorically, sure, there's validity in the sense that if you can move the window of conversation to the most extreme possibility, that is a negotiating tactic. But it's not a it's not negotiation starts with the principle of what we call good faith. Good faith means that you keep your word when you when you make the when you make the deals and then come to the final negotiation, the idea is that those earlier agreements will be honored and you won't at the last minute throw up the tables, change things unilaterally, and and push something through. That's bad negotiation. That's bad faith negotiation. And so what we're seeing right now is the wall is being used as a bad faith negotiation tactic. It is literally a broken promise, not only to the Democrats, but to leader McConnell himself. And now Mitch McConnell is saying, I'm not going to bring anything to the floor of the Senate that I don't have a guarantee will be signed by the president. Well, that's not shared powers. That's another very interesting point, too, that I've heard a lot of commentators raise, and I, and I appreciate that, which is these are supposed to be co-equal branches of government. Absolutely. And it is, you know, it's incumbent on the, the, the Congress and the Senate to do their job. And they're abdicating their responsibility by saying exactly this sort of thing. The thing that's particularly like mind-numbing to me is that just a few weeks ago, Senator McConnell put on the on the floor of the of the Senate a bill, a continuing resolution bill to fund the government that passed unanimously. One hundred. I don't know of any other bill that gets one hundred senators. That so rarely happens. And that shows they're beyond veto-proof legislation. So the the president could refuse to sign it and they can put it back to the floor and you get two thirds of the house, two thirds of the Senate to, to pass it. And it's, it's, it's law. So, I mean, it's just, I'm gassed. Well, and let, let us point out that the Republican party, which wants this wall on its face, it says it wants this wall. It had control of the house. It had control of the Senate. It had a, it had for better or worse, a popular mandate of some sort coming out of the election. It be interpreted that way, yeah. at least. Yeah. Um, up until the midterm elections, it had what could be interpreted as a popular mandate, and it could not get this done. I don't know in what universe we think that this is going to now magically happen because a, temp- a temper tantrum is being thrown. All that the American people can do right now is suffer. They can't thrive, and they can't, they can't live in this moment. And that, to me, is the most problematic thing, is the notion of the least of these among us, you know, those that are most in need of the social safety nets, not only the social safety nets that are run by the government, but the social safety nets that are supported and abetted by governmental aid. Those are shutting down and pulling back. We're talking about everything from meals on wheels to adoption services to to the care for the homeless. All of that is being pulled back. There's not enough private charity to make up the gap right now, and we need to find a way to get this open again, and that's what I'm praying for. One last thing on this this note before we take our break, it's worth um, going back to not only does this affect uh, the, the U.S. kind of population more broadly, um, but it affects our, our neighbors to the south who are, who are suffering and who are struggling and who are seeking a better life. This is the story of... Uh, you know, Lazarus and, and the rich man at the door. And that door is our southern border. So, you know, if you identify as a Catholic Christian, a Christian, a person of goodwill, 
It's worth going back and taking a look at that gospel parable because it does not turn out well for those of us who are on the other side of that wall and or door. Um, I think that's probably a good place to leave it. You're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in a moment. The Francis Effect is made possible in part by our wonderful supporters at Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod to find out about how you can join them. A couple of dollars a month really adds up, and we appreciate it. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash francisfxpod. Thank you. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Haran. I'm here with David Dalt. Every couple of weeks, we get together to reflect on current events and talk about them from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. We're going to switch gears now and take a look at a really extensive piece that was recently published in Commonweal Magazine by the eminent religion reporter Peter Steinfels. For a number of years, he was the senior religion reporter at the New York Times, and uh, for a period of time was also the editor of Commonweal Magazine itself. Um, Out of his retirement, he has surfaced to do an incredibly insightful and thorough investigative report of the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report that was released in August 2018. A lot of people are familiar with the kind of bullet points of that report, or at least they think they do, and I think that's one of the points that Steinfels makes here. The key sort of takeaway, um, if, if we had to kind of synthesize what this whole report says, is that very few of those who were reporting as journalists and writing stories and commenting on the grand jury report actually read the thousand plus pages of the report itself. And what uh, Peter Steinfels does is go through page by page, case by case, instance by instance, diocese by diocese, what the grand jury report presents and offers some some stunning uh, results. So, David, tell us about this. Well, I, I want to be very particular about what Steinfels is doing and what he's not doing, because I think that there's some confusion about that in the pushback. The confusion around Steinfels is indicative of the confusion around this report generally. First of all, it's a grand jury report, and it's a very particular type of grand jury report. And one of the things that Steinfels points out is we need to be careful about what this report is telling us and not telling us. So usually a grand jury report is the preliminary bringing of evidence that actually creates the possibility of a trial that is adversarial. So it opens the possibility for the bringing of evidence and for the chance for there to be counter-testimony. One of the things that Seinfeld points out is that the grand jury's report will never lead to that kind of jury trial in this case, largely because many of the people who are named in the grand jury report are dead. And so it's not attempting to create that kind of let's use adversarial jury time to get to the facts. Instead, it's simply trying to lay out a case. Okay, so that's the first thing is he wants— he Well, just to, just to clarify, yeah. too, so, so a case in this case, you mean, you know, grand juries weigh evidence to say, is there or isn't there enough to indict a particular individual or institution? Yeah. And the indictment doesn't mean conviction. Right. The indictment means exactly what you were saying, that you, you can present a case before a jury. Yes. But a grand jury is not the same as a trial jury. Correct. And we're dealing with 70 years, seven decades of data. And so piece number one, 
that Steinfels brings up is that this is a grand jury, not a jury trial. Piece number two is that over those seven decades, a lot of history changed, in particular the Dallas Charter for the Protection of Children and Young People that happened in 2002. And he, he, one of his criticisms is that the grand jury report fails to adequately account for the context of those historical changes. He says, for example, if we were to look at civil rights over that same period, we would see vast and sweeping changes that need to be accounted for in terms of what our current state of affairs is with civil rights. The third kind of criticism that he brings about the grand jury report or or what he's raising about the grand jury report is that he doesn't bring any contest to the horrible crimes that were committed by priests. What he is trying to draw attention to is the kind of sweeping claims that are made early in the document with regard to the bishops and the bishops covering up those sweeping crimes and that that has led to some popular understanding of the Catholic Church that may not be nuanced or accurate. And so it's important to realize what he's doing and what he's not doing in this document. I think having heard him speak and having read the document, he is by no means an apologist for priests and he's not trying to say that we need to be defending priests who are guilty of these crimes in any manner. I think he's saying prosecute them to the full extent of the law where that's possible. But I think that he also wants to say let's not overreach with our language or our conclusions, and some of the language and conclusions of the grand jury document can lead us to false ideas about how bad the problem is now in the church. First of all, do you think that my assessment is is okay? I I think you summarize that really well. And the second and third points in particular uh, struck me as I read the report or his reporting, this long form article. It's about 11,000 words. And I want to say I have not, I've read the Steinfeld's piece. I have not read the entire document. I've just read it. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. I haven't either. No, 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 no. When you're talking about the grand jury The grand jury, the 1300 page grand jury document. No, in fact, you know, this is the kind of premise for this is that people haven't read it. I, like so many people, last summer read the first 12 pages, the kind of executive summary that the grand jury presented, and it is deeply disturbing. Not because what's described is untrue. It is. Um, these are these are anecdotes. These are first-person narratives. They're you know, horrible crimes and horrible sins and abuse that have, have unfolded over the course of some seven decades, sometimes many, 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 many decades ago. And and I, I would agree with you, David. I don't think Peter Steinfels at any point, in fact, several points throughout this his article, he says, I'm not making an apology. I'm not excusing this. But I think, you know, to put it in a nutshell, he's getting at something that is very important, that is easily overshadowed, not just with church reporting, but reporting about politics, reporting about global issues today. And that's black and white, simple soundbite claims versus in-depth, nuanced reporting. There's a paragraph that I want to lift up that sort of really gives the framing of, of where his criticism of the grand jury report comes. He writes, quote, What precisely, I asked myself, did the Pennsylvania report tell us that was new? Did it refute the crucial and widespread belief that the Dallas Charter for the Protection of Children and Young People, passed by the Catholic bishops in June of 2002, implemented nationwide and backed by regular audits since then, had changed things dramatically? Did the report speak to the question uppermost in many parents' minds whether children and teenagers were particularly at risk right now in Catholic schools and parishes? As media phrases like, quote, the expanding Catholic sex abuse scandals, unquote, or, quote, a new wave of sex abuse scandals, unquote, or sexual abuse scandals now, quote, engulfing the church, unquote, might reasonably suggest, unquote. That's a long piece, but basically what he's saying is, you know, as a parent— speaking now for myself, 
my wife and I have these conversations, particularly in light of the grand jury reports sort of release over the summer. It changed the way that we were oh, Catholics. I remember. Oh, and we it, talked about yeah, this. And yeah, it, and it changed the way that we were Catholics with regard to our children in their school and the ki- the kinds of the kinds of activities that we were going to let them be a part of and all of that. So, you know, the grand jury report affected our lives. And one of the things that I, I find useful about what Steinfels is doing here is he's helping to add kind of a grain to the analysis. He's helping to say, you know, we can still trust aspects of the church. Now, that's not, again, to cover over the horribleness that happened. Yeah, I think it's even stronger than that, though. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought of you, when you, as you read that paragraph, when I was reading the article last week, I was thinking about you and the conversations we've had, both on the air here and personally, about your re- reaction as as a father, as a parent, as a spouse, and my reaction as a priest, and th- the fact that our perspectives are are different, but that we've had in in the wake of the events of last year, the, un, the unveiling of the McCarrick stuff, the, uh, the the grand jury stuff, how that's shaped and shifted our perspective and has darkened it, really, frankly, and has has there, a shadow has been cast or recast. I think I think what Steinfels's work does in the careful reporting and the way he he highlights this is confirm something that we have talked about on the air here. And it's difficult to talk about when there was such a wave of anger, understandable anger and frustration that was kind of like a tsunami of emotion, which is, again, understandable and, and, and in many ways righteous. But I think what Steinfels is pointing out is that there's a little bit of, of fear stoking and generalization with this broad sweep of, of a brush that casts 2019 as the same as 1950. And I think that's something that has been really difficult to grapple with because the, the kind of weight of this grand jury report, and he says that there was a manipulation. You know, he's very direct about this. If you read the whole 1,300 pages or whatever the report, the way that it's structured and the way that certain stories, the way that certain timelines were presented, it, it was misleading. I mean, there's no other way around it. Misleading about the fact that the some of the most egregious, most t- terrible things, and, and there's some instances that he recounts in here that I remember you and I have talked about. We talked about in episode one of the last season that were so disturbing to read. It doesn't make them any less disturbing or any less criminal or any less sinful. But it does make a difference if we put it in historical perspective to say this happened in 1962 and since 2002, 40 years, 50 years later, things have been very, very different. This is not the church of today. And as somebody who entered religious life two years, three years after the Dallas Charter was passed, my whole experience in formation, in application to religious life, the ongoing formation, the ongoing uh, workshops, these kinds of things, the evaluation. He makes allusion to this. You know, he talks about how the, the requirements have changed, not just since 2002, but even before that. And it's not to say that something, one-off situations won't, won't happen today. It happens. But I think one of the things that I take away from this reporting, which which I know firsthand or anecdotally, but that he does the hard work of looking at the actual case and evidence and, and, and arguments that, that the grand jury presents itself, is that it's actually now, it, it, among the clergy population, the likelihood of this kind of abuse is f- actually far less likely than you would find in, let's say, 
medicine, the practice of medicine, or in schools, or, you know, families where that happens most often. And again, I'm not making an apology for, you know, abuse and cover-up. These things are real, but the historical perspective is really important precisely because I think what what you've highlighted and I've taken away, which is a, the report and the reporting on the grand jury report has not done due diligence or, or, or provided the, the kind of just reading for what the church is like today. Let me speak. You used a phrase in what you just said where you said Steinfels has done the hard work. Let me talk a little bit about the structure of that hard work. Let me take one step back and say the, the document itself is actually two documents. Right. That was startling to read. There's there's an 800-page document that is the grand jury report, and then there's some four and a half hundred words, almost 500 uh, pages. Um, sorry. Yeah. And then there's some 500 pages of addenda that are attached to that report that are basically the rebuttals and the responses of the various dioceses to the allegations in the report. One of the things that Steinfels did was he chose one diocese as representative, and he looked through, and then he began to cross-reference what was being said in the grand jury report in that particular diocese with the responses and rebuttals that came hundreds of pages later. And he says, if you are trying to do this, it's laborious because you literally have to page through a PDF document hundreds of pages to cross-reference this back and forth and back and forth. Or you have to flip through a book back and forth, back and forth if you've printed it out. So he says, first of all, the very structure of the grand jury report makes it difficult to actually trace what you're talking about. How are things now? What is the state of things in the present day? And so that was his one of his main methods of criticism, or one of his main methods of analysis, was to do what he took to be a representative sample, and then to check it against other dioceses to see if this was an outlier or whether this was actually consonant with what was happening with other dioceses. He's not a statistician. He's not a mathematician. But he is a reporter trying to do his best to deal with a copious amount of information in a way that is humanly understandable. And so you can have criticisms of this method. He didn't look at every diocese. Uh, let me just comment on that. He did and he didn't. Yeah. In, in this article, he, he he uses the Diocese of Erie and gives a very clear rationale about why that's uh, kind of an illustration. It's an example. But then afterwards, he says, well, is this is, is this diocese kind of, you know, emblematic or is it an exception? And he says, no, actually. And then he gives some examples of the Diocese of Altoona and the Diocese of this. So he, he does, I, I think the work was done, but, you, you know, he could only present so much mm-hmm. as a case study. And I want to talk about that case study because I found that very, very insightful. And like you rightly point out, it's hard work. Those of us who are scholars who do research, you know, it's 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 time consuming. And journalists who do this kind of hard work, it's incredibly time consuming and laborious. But there were interesting things about this that the grand jury report, the executive report in the articles and coverage of that report last summer does not address. One thing is this historical timeline. We're talking about four different bishops in different periods of, of multiple decades and how they handled things differently according to their times. And that doesn't get taken into consideration. One example is one of the emeritus bishops of Erie, uh, Bishop Donald Troutman, is still alive. And so he was able to interview him, and he was able to respond to some of these accusations in the grand jury report or characterizations. And one thing you see is, and Steinfels is very nuanced about this. He says it's not that Troutman did everything perfectly in the, in the 2000s and in the 90s, but 
he did do things in accord with the best practices of the time. And in some ways, he kind of exceeded that. And one example he gives was that the Diocese of Erie on two occasions did something that seems to fly in the face of the the kind of sound bite of the grand jury report or the attorney general's uh, you know characterization one is that they hired a Pittsburgh law firm to do an independent analysis and and had access to all the employees of the diocese all the priests all their files to go through over you know many many decades to make sure that there were no um, uh, credibly accused uh, ministers who were in ministry, that everything was being handled well. That was something they did on their own initiative. It wasn't occasioned by a lawsuit. It wasn't occasioned by the Attorney General of Pennsylvania. It was something they did on their own. So that says something. Another thing is that there were instances where the diocese referred cases to the prosecutor in the county. Uh, this was something that they did, again, on their own, which flies in the face of the allegations the grand jury summary that says, and the, and the attorney general, that says that they, that the bishops writ large for the in the various dioceses, the six dioceses in Pennsylvania, methodically hid these sorts of things and did all they could to cover this stuff up. That's just simply not true. Steinfeld is saying, like, let's take a look at this. That's simply not true. And then after the Dallas Charter in 2002, they invited the Erie County District Attorney to come in and do an audit of their files and everything else, too. Again, this was not occasioned by a subpoena or something else. This was all something that was done, again, it wasn't on the front page of the of the of the newspaper. People didn't know about it. But Steinfeld's point was the attorney general and the grand jury should have known about this. This evidence should have been introduced, and it was. But it was added as addenda that nobody ever read. Nobody. It was not taken into consideration in the narrative. Now, all of that is is important, and I think one one thing that I want to make sure our listeners are aware of is that both, as you've just said, we both have a personal stake in this from our various perspectives in the Catholic Church, and. I think that it now, in the last part of this segment, we should turn to some of the criticisms that have just begun to emerge from Steinfeld's reporting. And I'm going to talk about two types of criticism. One I'm going to dismiss quickly, and the other I want to go into depth with with you. The first is those who are trying to push back against Steinfeld's because it weakens their case against Pope Francis. And they, you know, the current sex abuse crisis and the current iterations of the sex abuse crisis for some wings of the Catholic Church have been utilized as a way of trying to say Pope Francis is the locus of all the problem, and if we can just get rid of him, we will return to a golden age where none of this problem will happen. And there's there's cascades of that. I want to push that aside quickly because I think that that's largely a straw man. There is another pushback against this that has happened on social media, and that is from the people who have been victims of sexual abuse. And I think very rightly they have said, oh my goodness, why are we taking 12,000 words in common wheel and giving the bishops yet another encomium? Why are we not taking 12,000 words and really reporting on the experiences of the trauma that the church has created? I think that that's a legitimate criticism and one that we need to dive into both here in our conversation, but also as a church. And I'd be interested in your thoughts about that. Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts about that. One of the talks I gave when I was in Reno last week was um, a theology on tap. I was invited to speak to to young adults, and, and the theme was rebuild my church, you know, faith and discipleship in the wake of crisis. And I shared, you know, to listeners of the podcast, um, you heard in episode one of last season, season three, a little bit about my own experience in relationship to uh, the McCarrick revelations and the grand jury report and my own sort of discernment and struggle and, and so forth uh, as a person of faith and as a religious, as a priest. 
And we should say, rebuild my church is a phrase that's Franciscan. It right. was it was the the charism that was given by divine grace to Saint Francis. It, it, yeah, it was it was as the you know as the as the narratives go, it was what Francis heard um, Jesus speaking from the crucifix to him. The full kind of quote is, "Francis, rebuild my church, for you see it's falling falling into ruin." Um, and so I use that opportunity to talk about um, my own experience, my own kind of discernment and struggles, my own frustration and anger with, um, you know, w- with my brothers who are priests, my brothers who are bishops, um, the deep pain that I've, I've witnessed and seen, the people of God. I mean, it, it's complicated. I, I know there are friars in my own community, for instance, not my local community, but in, in the Franciscan order here in the United States, who themselves are victims of clergy sex abuse and yet entered religious life. They they aren't abusers themselves, but this is a very difficult thing. On the one hand, they're being cast, you know, in this sweeping claim that all bishops and priests are somehow bad or should be viewed skeptically, and yet they're also victim survivors. And so it's very, very complicated. And so one of the things that I did is I talked about my own experience. And the second thing that I talked about were six kind of takeaways, six things I think we need to think about in terms of theology and spirituality in ecclesiology. And one of the things, I only highlight one of them in light of what you were just saying, is that the church teaches, it's part of Catholic social teaching, but it's at the core, I think, of, of scriptural, the scriptural narrative, both Old and New Testament, and that's God's preferential option for the poor. And I said that if God holds a preferential option for the poor and the church holds a preferential option for the poor, that means the poor, the outcast, the marginalized, the voiceless, the victim, the stranger, the alien. And I said that means we need to have a preferential option for the victim survivors of clergy abuse. And I I believe very strongly about that. But it's not a zero-sum game. And I think that's that's a hard thing to say, and I'm sure we're going to get feedback and people are going to say, it sounds like Father Dan is, you know, defending the bishops, defending the priests. I am 100% not, 100% not. But I also realize that our starting point, I agree with the, the pushback, the starting point has to be victim survivors. And, and I, I'm not Pollyannish about this, but I think we're moving in a direction where that is becoming more the case. We're not there yet. But there's so much that needs to be done. Nowhere near it. But we're moving there. But I also think that what Steinfels's work does here is highlight how complex this is. And, and, and we, need to, we need to hold that tension. You know, I, I, I don't know how else to describe that other than to say this is important work that he's done. And, it's, and he's probably going to get a lot of grief for it. But it's, I mean, secular and religious journalists have all kind of come out in – in support that what he did was was good reporting. This is good journalism. It's it's you can't impugn it. And so I don't know. I resist very much this critique that you know eleven thousand words in Commonweal this long form piece on you know the the real nuanced and complicated reality of the grand jury report. It's it's misrepresentations. I think there's justice that needs to be done in terms of people like Bishop Troutman, like people uh, who have been you know. Maligned, I think there needs to be some accounting for the fact that there has been too broad a brushstroke that has put the whole church and everybody in it into one sort of category. At the same time, that needs to come second to hearing the experiences, the stories, being present to, being silent in the face of the great trauma and suffering and pain, and learning how we together work to make make sure this never happens again. 
And I think one of the takeaways, not to just belabor this, but one of the takeaways that Steinfeld's reporting does and that he says, look, the evidence is in the grand jury report if you read it, is that not just since 2002, but at various points, this has gotten better. And where we are right now is nowhere near the caricature that most people have walking away from the popular reporting on the grand jury report. If we think about Catholic canon law, Canon 210 reminds us that the baptized have the right to their dignity and their good name, and they also have the right to due process. And what I see this as is, you know, we're at the very beginning of the due process for the victims and for the perpetrators, and that this is an important step. The Steinfeld's report is an important step in getting the nuance of that due process out. The grand jury report, like any grand jury report, initiates a process of inquiry. This is now evidence gathering and the kind of testimony and counter-testimony that's important to drawing a conclusion that's part of any due process And so I think we need to remain prayerful throughout this, particularly, as you said, praying for the victim survivors, but also praying for the leadership of the church, because it is a time when if we hope that the church survives, and I hope that it does, we need a lot more light and a lot more honesty, a lot more transparency, but also a willingness to listen to things that make us uncomfortable and to to live in the reality that this is very complex. It's complex, but, you know, people who have been you know, victim survivors who are victim survivors, I want them to know too that they have every right, tell, you know, speak your truth, yes. tell your story as yes. you feel comfortable. And to my brother clergy, to my fellow ministers, lay and religious, uh, diocesan and so forth, it's our responsibility to hear that. And in the cases where there are crimes and allegations and stuff, and to report it. I mean, I think that that's, as somebody who has, again, been a member of religious life, you know, since 2002, that's just, that's just the way we, we were raised, to put it in kind of familial terms. And so that's, it's a no-brainer to us. And I want our listeners to hear that, too, that we, I can speak for those of my generation and, and others, too. I don't mean to make this a generational divide. Please come forward. We'll, of course, be addressing this again and again as the season goes on, and and as new information comes out, we'll be bringing it up. But in the meantime, for now, this might be a good place to leave the conversation. You're listening to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt. I'm here with Dan Haran. We'll be back in just a moment. Hey, folks, this is David. Thank you for listening, and thank you for supporting the work that I do. As you might be aware, in addition to this show, I help produce a number of other programs about culture and faith. One of those is the Freedom Road podcast. It's hosted by Lisa Sharon Harper. She's a front-lines, on-the-ground activist and advocate for issues of justice and peace. Each month, she gathers a group of leaders together to talk about progressive issues from a faith perspective. I record and produce the show, and every month I come away from the conversations deeply moved and having learned a ton about our world and the struggles for justice. I'd love for you to listen. You can find the Freedom Road podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, as well as at their website, freedomroad.us. That's freedomroad.us.
Hello and welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt. I'm here with my friend Dan Haran, a Franciscan friar of Holy Name Province in New York. Every couple of weeks we get together to talk about current events and issues through a lens informed by our shared Catholic faith. Now, Dan, I don't know as much about the synod that just happened, the 2018 synod, as I should. We've talked to some people who have been involved in it. We've talked about it a couple times on the show. But just recently, the synod has released its final document in English translation. I haven't had a chance to read the whole thing. I know that you have. Why don't you give us a little overview about what it is, and maybe also, as we begin the conversation, what you thought was good and what you found frustrating? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Just for further background, for those who aren't familiar, in October, basically the whole month of October 2018, uh, bishops from around the world and certain invited uh, delegates and observers were uh, in Rome to meet to talk about uh, the theme of young people, uh, discernment, and vocation. And a synod of bishops is, is a regular gathering of uh, worldwide representative bishops. So it's, it's bishops from around the globe, you know, usually have a couple from this continent, a couple from that continent. Um, and then with the delegates who are invited, they meet in, in language groups and they have conversations and they hear reports from the, from the floor, as it were, and people are able to get up and give little speeches and talk about their experiences. And, and it's always on a theme. So uh, this year, the, the, the last two prior to this one uh, was on the family, and people will remember that uh, double synod on the family, which resulted in Pope Francis's apostolic exhortation, Amoris Laetitia. And so this one was on young people, and the idea is uh, young people from the Vatican's perspective in this case was uh, those 16 to 29. So I, I am not a young person anymore by, by the Holy See standards. Um, but the process was very interesting. Uh, the synodal process under Pope Francis has really returned to what it was intended to be as established in the modern era by Paul VI. And that is um, it's supposed to be uh, an opportunity, a forum for, for genuine conversation, for information to be presented. And so at Pope Francis, and I should say contrast this to what it had been under John Paul II and Benedict XVI, which had been kind of a rubber stamping of, uh, of a perspective that had already been uh, established. So there would be a working paper at the beginning of the synod called an Instrumentum Laboris. And the way that it usually kind of played out in the 30 years or so before Pope Francis, between Paul VI and Pope Francis, was that the Instrumentum Laboris would basically be rubber-stamped by, you know, the, the bishops, cardinals, and delegates that would be present. What Pope Francis said is, you know, synodality, this literally walking together, the, the way that this needs to play out is that we need to solicit as much information as possible. So the family, the synods on the family that people may recall, the Pope in, instructed the various bishops' conferences and dioceses and religious orders to send out surveys and have listening sessions and to gather information about what is family life like today? What are the challenges? What are the struggles? What are the hopes, et cetera? Similarly, with the Young People Synod, Pope Francis did exactly the same thing. And so there was solicitation of feedback from young adults, solicitation in terms of language groups, and that each of the bishops' conferences from around the world would nominate two or three young adults who would join in Rome for a week in language groups to put together a kind of document that would be presented to the delegates and to the um, members of the synod. So that was really interesting. It was very, it it was very hopeful. Um, There was lots and lots and lots of feedback 
And I was very impressed, frankly, with what came out of the March uh, uh, 2018 gathering of young adults, about 300 young adults from all parts of the world. And their document was very prophetic, very honest, very direct, respectful, but direct. So then what followed is there was the drafting of the Instrumentum Laboris by the committee that plans the Synod. And that was slightly more disappointing from my vantage point. It seemed slightly tone deaf. It picked up on some of the things the young adults raised, but not all the issues. And then what you saw over the course of the various interventions, that's what the church, you know, the Roman system calls little speeches from the floor. You'd hear occasionally some pushback, some personal anecdotes, some reflections of different parts of the globe that were challenging to the church, um, to the way we do things, challenging to authority, et cetera, as well as affirming at various points. And then what happens is the uh, synod ends and the, there's a committee that drafts together a final document. And then paragraph by paragraph, that document is voted on by the voting members of the synod. And what has recently been released in English just this past week is the final English translation of that final document. So that's a little bit long-winded, but I think it's important to see that there are many iterations, many stages around this. But two things to highlight about this final document. One is, by its very nature, it's a compromise document because you need to have two-thirds of, of the synod participants, the synod delegates, approve each paragraph. So there were some holdouts, for instance, who did not like the acronym LGBTQ. And last season, we talked to Father Jim Martin about this, right? And, and that includes one of our own U.S. bishops, you know, uh, Charles Chaput of Philadelphia, Archbishop Chaput. So you get, you know, when you, when you have, you know, several hundred people voting and you need two-thirds vote, it's going to be a, a compromise document. We need to keep that in mind. The second thing, and this is very curious— this document was not just recently released. It was released in all the modern languages except for English within a week or two of the close of the Synod. But it was two months later that the English translation has been made available. And why is that? I don't know. That's the honest answer. I'm, I'm looking into that right now, as it, as it were. We've been waiting for it. There was a sign some, some weeks ago that an English translation was posted briefly to the Vatican website and then taken down. Uh, you know, I'm not interested in conspiracy theories. I don't think there's anything of that sort there. I will say it's one of the more poorly translated documents pertaining to the Synod. So people who read it will, will realize it's not, I don't know if it was non-native English speakers that were involved. I don't know. I don't know the origin story of this and I, I am looking into it for another project, but, um, but I think that's worthwhile. Um, so to your question, so that's the background. That's where this thing came from. It's, not a great document. <laughs> okay, well let's I'm let's sorry. let's let's take a moment and let's dig into that. So, uh, first of all, as you read through the document and having looked at the earlier documents, does it reflect? Uh, granted that it's a compromise document, but does it reflect some of that raw voicing that we saw in the preliminary documents from the youth around the world? No. Okay. No, I would say no. This is my interpretation. I would say that it follows more closely. Both in its structure, its outline, it, it follows the pattern of the Instrumentum Laboris, which would be expected. But it departs notably from some of the key themes. It avoids some of the key themes that the young people raise. You know, it, it, it does— Can you give us an example? Yeah, I'll give two examples. One is—well, um, I'll give three examples because I think they're three, the three most important. One is that the young people were very clear about what they called an authentic church, really kind of echoing the language of Pope Francis— 
And, and the implication there is that the church, as they see it, particularly church leaders, are inauthentic right now. That young people, millennials, and now the next generation Z, these, when we talk about 16 to 29-year-olds, their BS meters are very, very high and well-tuned. You know, they are not interested in being, you know, you know, smoke and mirrored. They, they want honesty. They want directness. They want sincerity. Um, there's too much kind of PR refinement around there. And they say, we don't want that in the church. They we, don't want to be focus grouped. They don't want to be focus grouped. They don't. They want an authentic relationship with Jesus. They want religious leaders, bishops, priests, religious, lay ministers. They mention lay ministers a lot as well, who are real who acknowledge that they're not perfect when they do screw up, when they, when they uh, make mistakes, that they acknowledge that, ask forgiveness, and that they offer forgiveness. So it's very Franciscan in the Pope Francis way in that regard. That doesn't really come across in the same tenor in the, in the final document, nor really in the Instrumentum Laboris. The second thing that comes up a lot in the Young People's document that was issued, that was given to Pope Francis on March 25th of 2018, is... Um, a focus on a clarification and a real kind of, I would call it a real kind of examination of conscience on the part of the church about the role of women in the church and in society. And, and the young people, sometimes you hear, and I, and I experience this as I travel around the world and have the opportunity to speak to, to people in different churches um, and in different communities, different countries. Sometimes I'll get pushback that things like the role of women in church and society, well, that's really an American thing. That's a Western concern. That's not a concern for the people of Uganda or the people of Sri Lanka or something like this. And, and what's very clear from the Young People's Document is that you had, there were only three Americans there out of 300 plus. And so, I mean, the fact that this surfaces is a reality everywhere. You can't say that 50% of the population of the globe concerns about their place in society and in the church is not a problem or a concern for everybody. And so that comes across very clearly. Now, they're not advocating. They're not, like, demanding, for instance, oh, women need to be admitted to holy orders. They're, they're not making that claim. They're just they're, – they're really trying to push their brothers in, in Christ, particularly the bishops, to say, you know, you need to take this more seriously. And, and you think about this in the wake of the Me Too movement. You think of this in the wake of a lot of things. It's an important thing. That is almost entirely gone in the final document. Surprise, surprise. And then the last thing that, that's raised is these, these kind of what the young people call in their document controversial or sensitive issues. And they mention, you know, gay uh, relationships, same-sex relationships. They mention LGBTQ populations. They mention uh, single people. They mention, you know, non-traditional family dynamics. You know, a lot of things that are everyday realities for young people. And they say, you know, we want, you know, we're not asking, we're not claiming to know what the best solution or response is. We're asking that you take up these issues seriously and directly and, and engage them in a, I would, this is Dan's language, but in a kind of humble listening and accompaniment sort of style. That's, that's the kind of what's conveyed in the document uh, from March, 2018. That really falls short here. And uh, Tom Reese, um, a Jesuit priest and, and columnist for Religion News Service, wrote an article once this document came out um, I think in its, originally in, in the original Italian back in October, you know, and he said, you see this as a compromised document with the kind of the glaring absences of things like the LGBTQ acronym that 
was used from the floor of the Synod that was included in the original draft of this document that did not get the two-thirds votes from the bishops present to be included. These little things that, that signal sort of erasures, that signal a sort of alternative reality from the world in which we live. And for our listeners who may not understand why this is a problem, there is an ongoing pushback against lesbians, gays, transgender being allowed to claim their own self-identity. And so the church in its documents has a, a language of intrinsic disorder and those sorts of things. And so when a person says, well, no, I'm, I'm lesbian, I'm gay, the church, there, there's a strain within the church that wants to push back against that and say, no, you need to understand yourself in the way that God has defined you, quote unquote, not the way that you have defined yourself. Am I getting that correct? Yeah, and I encourage our listeners to look back to last season, our conversation, David, that you and I had with, with Father Jim Martin, who, right. who raises exactly this point that he's done a lot of work. It's such a simple thing, but his point is, you know, it's part of Christian dignity and respect to call somebody by their own identity and name. And that, you know, it's silly in some ways, but if, if you said, hi, I'm David, I'm like, oh, nice to meet you, Davey. You know, it's disrespectful. So on, on the, like the most basic level, it's, it's, a, it's a light analogy. But on a more fundamental level, I would argue that that sort of absence actually reflects, you know, evincible ignorance, a willful ignorance about the complexity of human personhood and the realities of society. These, what you're describing a moment ago for our listeners is what sometimes is called the, you know, the ideologies that some in the church, um, particularly vocal critics of gay and lesbian ministry and these sorts of things, will talk about these ideologies, the ideology, you know, the, the, of, of gender or the ideology of sexual orientation. This is not ideology. This is not some sort of, you know, manufactured, you know, fad or something like this. These are the experiences and and the kind of ontological realities of people that have existed forever. Whether it's been visible or not is another question, and how people respond to these realities and complexities in society is another thing. Well, and to that point, even if they have been invisible in the past, the history of this synod is that the young people were intentionally making them visible in their commentary and in their documents, and that that visibility has been systematically expunged. And the, there's a there's a real I don't know if irony I think there is an irony in this, but it's it's a frustration from my vantage point, where one of the things that came across very clearly in the in the young people's document in, in 2018 was they said you know we do not want to be told to wait we do not want to be told that we are the future church. We are fully baptized. We are ready now. And, and you know, and I, I shared this with some young people at a Theology on Tap, you know, rec- in, in recent months. And I said, you know, how many of you had gone to college, you went to a Catholic university, or you went to a state school, but went to a, an active Newman Center? Who did the planning of the liturgy? Who did all the ministries? Who was engaged in all that? And it was them. I said, and how many of you returned home or you moved to your new place of work and you went to the local parish down the street and, and just it was dead? There was no welcome, you know, you, if you wanted to get involved in the music ministry or get involved in something else, you know, you kind of had to wait in line or do it the way they've always done it. So this is what the young people of the world are saying. They're acknowledging what, what Lumen Gentium says, that all the baptized are called to holiness. It's what Pope Francis reiterates in his exhortation in April, um, Rejoice and Be Glad, where he says, we're all called to sanctity. We all have this common vocation through baptism. They're seeking to live that out. And they're being told to wait. They're being told. They're saying, well, you know, you're asking us 
what we think and what our experiences are. And we're telling you, and one of the things we don't like is the patronizing and paternalism of, of church leadership. And what do we see in this final document from my perspective? Exactly that thing play out. They are not listening because the bishops by vote, by majority, whatever, don't want to touch certain what they perceive as third rail subjects or topics. And so, you know, they basically provide a, a milk toast response. Now, I may be overly critical of this document. I'm sure some people will like it. Nobody who has any kind of functioning competency in the English language will appreciate its structure. It's, it's not well translated again. But here's why it really matters is that shortly before the, the synod convened, uh, the, like the third week in September of 2018, Pope Francis issued a papal bull. Um, it's an official document that um, defined new rules for how the synod of bishops was to unfold. It's, it's a controversial uh, document in its own regard, um, and it's also a hopeful document too. One of the hopeful things was it said you did not have to be ordained to be a voting member of the synod. So it had been limited to bishops and priests, and, one, and the reason was that there were two superiors general of brother communities that were elected to the synod. So Pope Francis opened that up. But interestingly enough, at the press conference where the cardinal who oversees the synod was talking about this papal bull, the journalists asked the question, well, does this mean then that religious sisters and lay women and men who are there can vote? And he said, at this point, there's no change in that. So that's curious, right? And, and a little bit ostensibly misogynistic. But so that's a controversial element. Another thing, though, that he highlights in that document is that, especially under John Paul II, it had become kind of standard practice that after a, a synod of bishops, the Pope would issue an apostolic exhortation, some sort of document exercising ordinary magisterium to articulate or summarize the teaching that has kind of surfaced or been reiterated in the synod discussions itself. And Pope Francis says in this papal bull, maybe we don't always need to do that. And that maybe what could happen is that the final document of the synod voted on by the members of the synod could be essentially kind of stamped by the Holy Father, by the Bishop of Rome, and, and kind, of set, kind of added into the magisterial teaching of the church that way, that there wouldn't need to be another document. That's why I think it's important to highlight some of the, what I would perceive to be inadequacies or insufficiencies of this final document. And it's my personal opinion that Pope Francis should write an apostolic exhortation in which some of these things that had fallen to the wayside get reintroduced. So, for instance, the LGBTQ acronym thing, Pope Francis himself has not, he, you know, in a way that has shocked a lot of people, he's very comfortable saying the word gay to talk about gay people, you know. I think it would be very striking for young people to read a document that was about them and, and written for them that takes them at their word and takes them at their level and experience, meets them where they are. Do you think Pope Francis is in a position or of a mind to do something like that? Could you imagine that happening? Oh, yeah, yeah. He has up until now done, done that. You know, the joy of the gospel was the post-synodal exhortation on uh, the synod that actually Benedict XVI called on the new evangelization. Amoris Laetitia was the post-synodal exhortation on the two synods on the family. He very much can still do that. It's curious whether or not he'll use this occasion to kind of put into practice what was highlighted in that papal bull um, from September 2018. It's my personal view that he should write one that I don't think this final document is sufficient. 
but that's just my that's my perspective. He might look at this and and view it as satisfactory, and he has nothing more to say about it. That's okay too. But you know what's unique about the Bishop of Rome is that he has universal teaching and pastoral authority by virtue of being the Bishop of Rome, and so he's uniquely situated in a way that a synod of bishops and that local bishops conferences and local bishops don't have that authority in the church. So I think there's a statement that, you know, so what he's saying effectively is he can kind of absorb this document into his own ordinary magisterial teaching and kind of give it that approval. That has not been done yet. You know, there's, there's been no, I, I don't know what the mechanism would be for that to be the case. He would have to say that somewhere, somehow. And so maybe he's pondering doing an exhortation. I don't know. I hope he does. That's my encouragement. Well, Dan, thanks for that overview, and thanks to all of our listeners for being with us this week. We're glad to be back. It's a new season, season four. We'll be back with you in two weeks. Please know that we're so thankful to our Patreon supporters and to those who write to us, and also know that those who have written to us to let us know that you're sick or that you're uh, that you're working on behalf of those who are sick. I'm thinking about Brother Nathaniel and others who are currently in recovery. We're praying for you as well. So with that, we'll see you again hear you again, talk to you again in two weeks. Thanks for being here, Dan. Thanks, David. Thank you all. The Francis Effect podcast is produced by Sandberg Media. We recorded the show at the William Adams Studios here in beautiful Hyde Park on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. The opinions expressed on this program are our own and do not reflect the position of any institutions with which we might be affiliated. We have production space courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. They're not responsible for the content of this program, but they're wonderful folks, and you should look them up at zygoncenter.org. That's Z-Y-G-O-N-Center.org. We also want to give a shout-out to our friends at Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They're also not responsible for the content of this program, but they gave us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it. Check out their good work at saltandlighttv.org. We're supported by listeners like you. If you want to join us in this bold adventure, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. Not only do you get the warm satisfaction of a virtuous deed well done, but you also get to unlock bonus content from our episodes. Again, that's patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook at francisfxpod. That's Francis, the letters F and X in the word pod. Likewise, our website is francisfxpod.com. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing francisfxpod at gmail.com. That's effect spelled to the English way, E-F-F-E-C-T. If you're here for the first time, welcome. We've got a bunch of episodes from three seasons you can check out, and thank you again for listening. <laughs>